Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And today, as I promised last week, I'm going to tell you what I think about legislation that may be coming up in a number of states that would subject an abortive mother to a criminal sanction. I'm going to speak to it as I would think through it as a legislator, at least as I would think through it now, and what I might say to a legislative audience. Now, for those of you who've never been in the legislature, uh, as I was for 12 years, you need to appreciate that legislators vote on the legislation that's brought before them. They don't vote on abstract propositions like, do you think a Abortive mothers are always victims, or do you think a mother who aborts her child has committed a criminal act at some level? No, we vote on a specific proposition that is in front of us. Now, the reason I said a criminal act at some level is because I want to be clear about what I understand the specific legislation was in Louisiana that started this series of videos by End Abortion Now. I spoke last week to my counterpart in Louisiana, and if I understood him correctly, I think I did, the legislation that's at issue would have subjected the woman who uh, aborts her child or authorizes a doctor to abort her child to be subject to the same criminal sanction that would apply to a doctor who's convicted of performing the abortion. In other words, the woman would be subject to the death penalty as well. Now, I don't have any reason to think my colleague would misrepresent the, the, the bill on, on that point. So the specific question I'm addressing is whether I would vote for the imposition of the death penalty for presumably all women who participate in an abortion by authorizing it or doing it herself. Now, how I would think through a different version of a bill directed at abortive mothers is not what I'm addressing today. It's just that bill. So with those things said, here goes. As to my evaluation of the law as a Christian legislator, the first thing I'd want to get straight in my head is Matthew 6, 33. First, I need to make sure I understand what the kingdom of God is and where it's to be found. That's the first part of Matthew 6, 33. It records Jesus saying, seek first the kingdom of God. And Jesus instructs those who are part of his kingdom to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I've got to think through that first command, you might say, uh, exhortation, uh, before I could figure out how to vote on this bill. And second, I would need to get fixed in my mind the second part of the command in Matthew 6.33, which is to seek his righteousness, which can only mean the righteousness of God revealed to us in Jesus as our mediator before God. And and any law that I would vote for, which would include my motivations, may or may not be righteous as God would define righteousness. Okay? 
I mean, I can have all kinds of motives such as election or re-election or how I'm going to perceive by this group or that group that could taint the righteousness of what would otherwise, in semantic terms, in its own wording, look to be a righteous thing. Now, why do I suggest Matthew 6.33 as a proper framing of this particular legal and political issue? And apart from the fact that something Jesus said, and he said to make it first, I bring it up because of three other things I'm going to talk about now before I get to what I would say to a legislative audience, which I'll be saying to y'all. The first is this. The kingdom of God is not the state legislature. Okay? The kingdom of God is composed of the people of God. And I take this from any number of passages, but the one I want to call particular attention to is 1 Peter 2.9, because it not only describes the contents of this kingdom, but what those in it are to do. And here's what Peter wrote. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Okay, there's our kingdom. His own special people, different from the rest that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And I would back this idea of the kingdom up with Colossians 1.13, which says he's delivered us from the power of darkness, said in 1 Peter 2.9, and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. So in other words, when those who've been transferred to the kingdom of God's son, God's kingdom, hold office in the state legislature, the kingdom is present by their presence and in the way they exercise the authority and jurisdiction they have, both as to its substance, the policies they would support or oppose, but as I previously noted, the way in which they go about doing so. In regard to this, Calvin writes, and it and it weighed heavily on me when I was in the legislature and still weighs heavily on me because I advise a bunch of legislators. And it's this, that civil government officials, quote, because they are the vicegerents of God, it behooves them to watch with all care, diligence, and industry that they may in themselves exhibit a kind of image of the divine providence, guardianship, goodness, benevolence, and justice. And let them constantly keep the additional thought in view that if a curse is pronounced on him that doeth work of the Lord deceitfully, a much heavier curse must lie on him who deals deceitfully in a righteous calling. Now, continuing on with my words, not those of Calvin. In other words, that legislative body as a whole, as an institution established by a man-made written constitution, is not to be confused with the kingdom of God. As Calvin wrote in his Institutes, and I'm quoting here, the spiritual kingdom of Christ and civil government are things very widely separated. Though he also said, and I'm quoting here again, still the distinction does not go so far as to justify us in supposing the whole scheme of civil government is a matter of pollution with which Christian men have nothing to do. And he also added, 
that the two are not adverse to each other. But in sum, what I'm trying to say is the body of Christ is where the kingdom of God is. And a state house or a state senate as an institution is not itself the kingdom of God. Though its direction in terms of conduct and policy will be influenced either by those who have been conveyed to the kingdom of his son or those who remain in the kingdom of darkness. So in other words, if every law enacted by a state legislative body were perfect righteousness, the kingdom of God would have come upon it by its membership. But a senatorial institution or um, a representative chamber is not itself the kingdom of God. The Tennessee Senate could be completely overthrown as an institution established by the state constitution. The kingdom of God and its advance wouldn't be threatened or thwarted in the least. In other words, a Christian need not be worried about saving a bicameral legislative system like we have here in Tennessee, because if we don't, the kingdom of God is going to go down the tubes or his righteousness isn't going to disappear from the face of the earth. I personally think a A bicameral legislative system is a great blessing of God's providence. But if it's replaced with a unicameral system, like I think in Nebraska, it's not going to be the end of the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? I mean, God's kingdom was advancing in England even when the king was largely autonomous and tyrannical. He was clothed with divine right, and its parliament was not independent of the king. It depended on the king to even call him into session, right? So let's not confuse these government institutions with the kingdom of God. That being said, in our state government, at least here in Tennessee, and it grieves me, grieves me to say this, the kingdom of darkness holds far more sway than does the kingdom of God. And that's for sure true of our culture here, broadly speaking, though it's not as overtly and generally depraved as in many states. But I offer that critique of our legislative body and our culture here because recognizing your audience is critical. A Christian legislator will need the wisdom to know how to do what was said in 1 Peter 2, 9, that the members of God's kingdom are to do. Namely, how do we proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? That's what we need to know how to do if we want to advance the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, there may be a way we would proclaim that when speaking to those in a church or in a community largely under the sway of the gospel and the kingdom of God's son. And there might be another way to proclaim it when on Mars Hill, addressing Stoics and Epicureans, right? And, and this point was driven home by a sermon preached by Doug Wilson. Many of you know Pastor Doug, he's at Christ Church in Moscow, and in his recent Stay of the Church sermon, he said something that I want to apply to this situation, though I'm, I'll take full responsibility for, for how I applied. But he spoke of the advice of his father, who was a minister, who had said that there's a deeper right than being right. And here's how he explained it. So this is a transcript of the sermon that I sat and typed up. Quote, It's not enough to have a verse. You have to have the right verse. You have to read not only the scriptures, but you have to read the circumstances. You have to read the word and you have to read the world. 
You have to know what's going on in the world, and you have to know what's going on in the Word. And you have to see that these two things match. These two situations come together. Sometimes we're to show mercy, right? Sometimes we're to execute justice. When? How? So this is a knife. He's referring here to the idea that there's a deeper right than being right. And he says, but there's an important qualification I want to make. If there's always a deeper right than being right, then this has to apply to every kind of right, not just the right that has hard lines and straight edges. There's the right that can be categorized as the hard virtues. But there's also right that can be categorized as soft virtues. There's justice and wrath and judgment. Those are hard virtues. But then there's tenderness, gentleness, and kindness. Those are soft virtues. So in other words, you have to take into account the whole counsel of God in light of the whole of the circumstances into which you want to speak the words and principles of God. Now, I said earlier there were three reasons for framing my analysis and how I would vote in terms of Matthew 6.33. What I, I just said there about what Pastor Wilson said and having a verse ties in to the second reason for this approach, and it's found in what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, recorded in the first chapter of his first letter to him. It's in verses 5 through 11, so bear with me if as I read it. Quote, now the purpose, now that word purpose mean, is, is the Greek meaning telos, the purpose of the commandment. Let me flesh that out a little further. In other words, the end or the goal to which the law is directing us is something beyond the law or the command itself held in isolation. That's part of this idea of the deeper right than the right. It's, it's the idea that you have to have more than just a verse. And here's what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy. The purpose of the law is, and it's, quote, love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. And this is the interesting part. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So you want to be a teacher of the law, but you don't really get the law. And then he makes this astounding statement. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which I was committed to my trust. In other words, you can have a verse from the law to champion, but how do you use it lawfully? And keep in mind here that Paul's not speaking about civil law, but the use of law among members of the kingdom of God. Okay? And that moral law, in this case, of abortion, would be the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. 
But in keeping with what Paul said about the end or the goal of the law, the, the sixth commandment is for those who would consider murder to try to restrain them, to say it is wrong. But in Christ, but in Christ, we see that there's something deeper than murder at play in abortion. And I spoke about that in my December 29th podcast. It's covetousness, and I cited James 3.19. You remember, Paul was not convicted by murder by virtue of the Sixth Commandment, even though that's what he was doing. The Holy Spirit brought him to faith in seeing how covetous he was. And, and you'll find that in Romans 7 if you want to read it or go listen to that podcast. So, so we would do well to note that the Sixth Commandment does not in itself prescribe penalty. That law, those Ten Commandments, are not self-executing. There must be a process of judgment by which it's determined that a murder has been con- uh, committed, and there must be a consideration of what the penalty should be, right? The moral law of God itself, the creational law of God that, that would say you shall not murder, does not speak to those things directly. Now, as to this idea of the process, well, we we have a process. It's grand juries and indictments, a presumption of innocence, jury trials, and things like that. And sometimes they work well, and sometimes they don't. And as to the penalty, we see that after the flood and God's instructions to Noah, a penalty attached to murder, right? But we see a further refinement of it in the social laws of the mosaical polity in which levels of culpability and circumstances are taken into consideration. You'll find that in Numbers 35. But in some, it's not enough for the death penalty that a person dies simply as a result of something I did. There are other things that would then be taken into consideration. But the key point for me right now is is this idea that the law of God can be used unlawfully. Okay? And... And that's a strange thing to our ears. So how do we speak to the law of God when we're not in the church, which is what Paul's addressing there in 1 Timothy, but we're speaking about it in a pagan or sub-pagan culture or before a legislative body that looks more like Mars Hill than a place where the kingdom of God holds sway, right? Now, I suspect this idea of law, even the good and right moral law of God being used unlawfully is a strange idea. And it was for me when I first began to think about it, and I wrote about it 10 years ago in my first book, The Politics of Loving God. And and this idea that law can be used unlawfully leads to the third reason that I have for framing my analysis through Matthew 6.33. I said there were three, and... Now comes the third. And this ties into why the idea of law being used unlawfully sounds strange to us. And, and, and for an explanation of this, I want to hearken back to an episode from March 19th of last year when I used some material from Jonathan Burnside, who's the professor of biblical law at the University of Bristol Law School in England, and uh, two speeches that he gave there. They can be found at the Hale Institute website on YouTube. And uh, you can go back and listen to that episode, but I'm going to briefly summarize it here. And he said two things that that go to why I framed 
the analysis in in terms of Matthew 6.33. First, he said, we need to stop thinking of biblical law in terms of modern law. And that if we think of biblical law in the way we think of modern law, quote, we are not thinking of biblical law in the way that the Bible presents it. And he referred to Jeremy Bentham and the fact that we now think of law almost strictly and entirely in terms of legal positivism. In other words, law is posited by somebody, and in particular, we tend to think in terms of enacted statutory law. And and so it's written commands by a sovereign to which a penalty is attached. That's what Bentham said. But legal positivism has so degenerated that in the current version of the Oxford Encyclopedia of the Bible and Law, Burnside notes that it says this, quote, The Ten Commandments are less relevant to the subject of biblical law because the individual statements of the Ten Commandments don't carry any sanctions. And that's important to remember because as A.W. Pink put it so well in his book, The Law and the Saint, which you can find online, the sanctions for the violation of the commandment were not written by God on tables of stone and they weren't placed in in the ark. And that's going to be important for reasons I'm going to come to in just a moment. But the second thing um, Burnside said is that modern law tends to be understood in semantic terms only. In other words, what he was saying is we look strictly at the meaning of the words used. We don't think about whether there's any deeper or weightier meaning or principle that might be contained in the words. The second thing Burnside said that was related to the first is the way in which the Bible presents biblical law. Now, keep in mind, he just said, we're not thinking about biblical law rightly if we're thinking about it in legal positivist, Benthamite, Oliver Wendell Holmian's terms, okay, because biblical law is closely related to wisdom. And he's demonstrated what he meant by how we would read in semantic terms uh, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 26 of Proverbs. Verse 4, we read the command, do not answer a fool according to his folly. Semantics would say, okay, I get that. But in the very next verse, we read, answer a fool according to his folly. And we'd say, hey, semantically, in terms of words, those two commands contradict each other. They can't be right. Somebody left out some word or something's wrong there. And so we, we see immediately there that biblical law comes into us in a way that requires wisdom and meditating on it, which is why we should sometimes be slow to speak, as it says in James 1.19, and why we should remember that a fool has no delight in understanding but in expressing his own heart, Proverbs 18.2. We need to sometimes consider the fact that Proverbs 17, 28 says even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he's considered perceptive. So so biblical wisdom and law go together. In other words, there can be a deeper right than being right. There can be something more than saying, I have this law in my hand and shaking it in people's face. So taking all this together, I would ask this question. How will a strict command that all abortive mothers, not just multiple offenders, but a first offender, 
be subjected to the death penalty, be heard by those who know Christianity to be merely rules. They're Benthamites, okay, even as sometimes we are, and harsh penalties from a God who's anything but love. I mean, how's that going to be heard in our community, especially after every recognizable voice in the pro-life community has spent 50 years telling everybody who listened that the woman's always a victim, meaning without any moral culpability. And now all of a sudden, you know, you're a murderer and you get the death penalty. It's like the dad who's cussed all his life by uh, like a sailor in the household and his 14-year-old boy, you know, when he when, when dad is converted, says, son, if I ever hear a curse word come out of, out of you, I'm throwing you out of the house. I mean, gee whiz, he's spent 14 years hearing you cuss like a sailor, right? So anyway, that, that lie that women are never culpable and it's perpetuation has made the whole situation more difficult. So I don't think you can just say, as as a legislator who's a Christian, well, I've got the Sixth Commandment, so pass the law and prevent murder. I also don't think we can just say, well, God is love in the Scriptures, and I've got that verse in my hand, so don't pass the law. I think the decision is harder than some in both camps want to think it is. But people in both camps like rules because it doesn't require wisdom in their application. It doesn't require them to think of the deeper right than than just being right. Now, before you think what I'm saying is some newfangled thing, consider that the death penalty under the Mosaic polity applied to kidnapping, cursing one's parents, worshiping other gods, violating the Sabbath, adultery, and incest. And ask yourself, are there any in your congregation who could in times past have been convicted of those things? And should they have been part of your congregation when it happened? Should you seek to restore such a one or insist the civil government impose the death penalty on them so they might come to their senses and repent? I mean, are we clamoring for the death penalty in all those cases too? And if not, why not? And and for an answer to that, I suggest we look at what we find in the Westminster Confession, chapter 19. So I think what I'm saying is consistent with that, and in that sense, it's not anything newfangled, but perhaps something we've forgotten. And this is what it says. Quote, besides this law, commonly called moral, the Ten Commandments, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age, meaning it wasn't fully developed yet. It was, as Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, under tutors, ceremonial laws. And the confession goes on to describe those, but then continues. Quote, to them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging under any now further than the general equity thereof may require. Wow, that takes wisdom. A.W. Pink, uh, in the last century, put it this way. It is clear beyond any room for doubt that the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, were sharply distinguished from the law of Moses. The law of Moses, accepting the moral law incorporated therein, was binding on none but Israelites or Gentile proselytes. But the moral law of God, unlike the Mosaic, is binding on all men. So, now we've come to the end and what I, I think I would actually say. And, and after I say it, I want to suggest one final 
comment. So, ladies and gentlemen, members of this committee, at this time, I can't vote for this bill because I don't know yet how it fits with what Jesus is recorded as saying in Matthew 23, 23, to the Pharisees who took the law on tithing, even as there's a, a law on not murdering, and who kept it scrupulously, perhaps even in a supercilious way, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others, the tithing of the mint and dill and cumin, right? Undone. In other words, members of the committee and ladies and gentlemen of the office, I get how justice would work. A crime in the eyes of God, even if not seen to be so in the eyes of others, has been committed. And for that crime, there should be some sanction. But I have to ask, what about the other soft virtue that Jesus joins with justice, namely mercy? As if the two do not have to stand as polar opposites, because in Jesus and in God, they cannot be or else God himself is internally conflicted between justice and mercy. So how do I tie them together in such a way as in doing so, I might also point to the righteousness that's in Matthew 6.33 that Jesus says his people are to seek first, which finds its resting place in faith. The other thing, Jesus told the Pharisees they had failed to consider. A faith that's in an objective truth about a person is not an abstract proposition for grounding moral judgments and rules for our damnation, but a person who even now is the Son of God in human flesh named Jesus, in whom justice and mercy and faith in his heavenly Father and reliance on the Holy Spirit met together in peace. How do I do that among a people who don't know that God and think of him only as the prescriber of rules who delights in sending rule breakers to hell? And how do I go beyond what the law requires, beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees, to replace the victim mentality that so many in the pro-life community, perhaps even myself at times, have said with good intention uh, and, and it's foisted on women as a salve for their conscience and sense of culpability with a restoration of something that's glorious. Not just the striking down of what is bad, but the restoration of what is glorious. And, and that's the idea that God has bestowed on women a glory that they are the only human beings through whom another human being made in the image of God can even come onto this earth and through whose womb God seeks to accomplish his eternal plan to fill the earth with sons and daughters who are made in his image. And how do I help women see that this God-given glory is greater than and should not be exchanged for any glory in the workplace or in sports or anywhere else man-made and conceived glory can be found, especially when I as a man 
may have been putting more emphasis on career and money than on my wife and children and inducing women to think that that was the greater glory. I mean, how do I do those things, things that would truly begin to make abortion seem unthinkable? And yet, on the other hand, if if these other things are not done simultaneously with the passage of the law, avoid being one of the Pharisees Jesus described in that same chapter of Matthew 23, but in verses 4 and 5, as those who bind heavy burdens hard to bear and law on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers, but all their works they do are to be seen by men. Right now, I don't know. Today, I cannot vote for the law in front of me. And, and I think that's what I would say. It's what I'd like to think I would say. But but I want to close with something more generally, not not what I would say to a legislative audience in a in a legislative hearing room. I don't, I don't know how well the things I've mentioned today are being discussed in the Christian community. From some of what I've seen, I suspect a lot of the discussion in each camp is about how bad those people in the other camp are. And to this, I would add one last thing. While Adam and Eve were to subdue the earth, I appreciate the dominion mandate. I believe in the dominion mandate. God spoke it. He commanded it and rightly understood it as a great thing. But their first command was to cultivate and tend or keep the garden that God had planted in Eden, the garden being the place where he would meet with them. And I believe that it's only in learning how to tend and cultivate the garden God has given us the kingdom represented in the body of Christ and in local churches that will learn what gardening looks like and learn what will be needed to subdue the wilderness, particularly a post-fall wilderness that's now covered in thorns and thistles. So judgment in this matter, I think, should start in the household of God. And I think that means we Christians, myself included, need to figure out these weightier matters better than we have before we start trying to tame the wild wilderness that's in our culture and capitals. And there you have it. Those are my thoughts, and I hope you'll join me next week for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.